0: Thank you for joining us for another great episode. Today we have Yassine Sangor, Director at the UK's Confronting Change, Diversity, and Inclusion Strategies, an organization whose services include consultancy, policy review, workshops, and more. Originally from Gambia, Yassine is a diversity and inclusion specialist and culture writer with expertise in creating LGBTQ inclusion and in anti-racist spaces. Hi, Yassine welcome
1: hi thanks for having me
0: of course i love your materials i see in the background and of course what you're wearing right now those patterns
1: <laughs> yeah so i love a clashing pattern
0: <laughs> no it's very nice what are those in the background
1: half of my wardrobe is just shirts and jackets and various bits
0: oh wow
1: And then my flag, because I was going to pack it away. And then I thought, why not? I want it in the back of all my Zoom calls, um, just in case people weren't completely clear that I was a massive (laughs) queer.
0: (laughs) And it's the energy that'll help us through this interview (laughs) or be with us. (laughs) Yeah. So how are you surviving this heat wave here in the UK?
1: Oh, I Love it, but also love to complain about it, I think, Mm. which seems to be the standard UK way to deal with it. But yeah, no, it's been such a miserable winter during lockdown. My entire mood, my entire disposition just changes completely as soon as the sun comes out. And I think a lot of people, especially in London, definitely are the same. So yeah, I'm just appreciating it and trying to make the most out of it.
0: I'm going to jump on board with that. I'm from Arizona and I've had people say, well, you should be used to this. I was like, I haven't lived in that in a long time. <laughs> and I was well, not why I left, but I don't like the heat.
1: like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, My joke is, uh, yeah, if I'd wanted the heat, I would have stayed in Africa. <laughs> I didn't come here for this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
0: and it's a little bit humid here for me. I'm used yeah. to more of a drier heat. So, yeah.
1: Mm, yeah, it's definitely not a city that's built for heat. So, it, yeah, it's it's just not made for it.
0: No, I don't think so. I'm not in London, but um, it's like, where are the air conditioners? I need (laughs) AC. I need something. (laughs) Yeah. So to kind of center us where we're at, how are you other than the heat? How are you uh, right now?
1: Yeah, I'm very well. Business and work is going really well. I've had really great opportunities to work with some really interesting clients on some really interesting projects. And so I definitely can't complain about that. In the UK, we're actually this week in this very weird position where the government has effectively said, there are no rules anymore. So just go and survive how you survive with coronavirus. <laughs> so I think I've got a little bit of trepidation about that and about what happens now going outside and stuff. Yeah, being able to go out, see people again a little bit and you know even go to things like the theatre and art galleries and all that kind of stuff, which I absolutely adore and have missed so much. So it's been really nice being able to do that a little bit more, even though I'm still trying to be quite cautious and quite um, sensible about going back into the world.
0: Yeah, I can understand that. I'm actually in southern England. But how is it in London? Have people completely given up wearing masks?
1: So I literally refuse to go outside since the 19th or whenever it is. But yeah, friends were saying that on the public transport, on the tubes and stuff, nobody's wearing masks anymore. And I know that there was a couple club nights that launched on Sunday night as soon as they were able to. I think they're trying to be as responsible as possible. I think they're asking people to take lateral flow tests before they go or present, you know, the COVID vaccines or negative tests and stuff. Whether people will do that, will we have yet to see. I'm going to hold off a little bit before I enter a club anytime soon.
0: Yeah, caution is best, I think. I've been in Europe for about a year and a half, a little over a year and a half, but mostly in Sweden. So Sweden was a little different. I didn't really experience how the rest of the world was doing this with wearing the masks and all that until I came to the UK briefly last summer. And then uh, more so in the last few months since I've been here again in March. But yeah, I think caution is best. Yeah. So you're in London. Is that where you grew up?
1: It is not, no. I've been in London about 12 years since university, since I left uni, but I actually went to university in Scotland at St. Andrews. And then prior to that, I was at boarding school in Brighton. So that was most of like secondary school, so 12 to 18. And then prior to that, I grew up in Senegal from five to 12. And then before that, I was in Ethiopia and I was actually born in Kenya. So that's a retrospective of my life.
0: So you're like a person of the world.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, child of the world, yeah.
0: Is your um, background Gambian?
1: My dad is Gambian. My mother was Liberian. So mix of both. We used to spend a fair bit of time in Liberia before the civil war started until I was about four. We spent a bit of time there. My grandmother was still there, quite a bit of my family, my cousins and aunts were still there. Mm-hmm. And then the civil war started in was it 1990, 91. So I didn't go back again to Liberia until my sister got married there. And I think it was like 2010, 2011. So there was a good 20 years where I didn't go to Liberia. But um, I did spend quite a bit of time in Gambia growing up until I was about 14, 15 or so. I think the last time I went back was maybe three or four years ago. We didn't grow up, grow up there. It was always just go back and visit family. And usually for, you know, a couple of weeks during summer or winter holidays. So it's a very strange place going back to, especially as an adult, because there's lots of familiarity, but it also still feels like very foreign and everybody treats you like you're an English person anyway. So it kind of doesn't feel like home, but does feel quite familiar at the same time.
0: I'll just say this for our listeners, mainly in the States, uh, Gambia is in Northwest Africa.
1: Western Africa. Yes. It's a very tiny, tiny country. It's surrounded almost entirely by Senegal. Gambia and Senegalese people are historically of similar tribes of the same people. But basically Gambia was a British colony France was a French colony and Gambia has a river surrounding it and was like a trade route and so the British effectively just held on to it to annoy the French as you know colonialists are want to do known to do so yeah that's kind of why gambia exists the republic of the gambia it's an english speaking country it has a lot of like british colonial influences and things like that and is in theory separated from senegal which has like lots of french influences but then traditionally tribal languages and all that are, are, are all the same and we're of the same people. So I've got, you know, Senegalese cousins and, and Gambian cousins and things like that because we're effectively just all from the same place, but it's just been split up by colonialism.
0: That fun word, colonialism. <laughs> you know, I mentioned in the intro about your organization, Confronting Change. Can you tell us what that is?
1: Yeah, Confronting Change is a diversity and inclusion strategies consultancy. I'm a diversity inclusion specialist. Uh, I've been doing it for about four-ish years now, maybe just over. I officially launched it last year. I'd been doing freelance work for a while before that anyway. And then I'd also been working at Stonewall, which is one of the largest LGBT organizations in Europe, with a focus on LGBT inclusion in that space. Uh, but then also had been doing lots of freelance work, particularly around race and anti-racism. And then obviously with the events of last year, you know, there was a lot more demand for that, uh, unsurprisingly. So It kind of just got to the point where I had worked with some really interesting clients and could see there was an option to actually move into this more full-time, more kind of with my own vision rather than working for somebody else. So I dove into that. And yeah, it's been going really well ever since. We do run a range of services and ways in which we work with organizations. There's the kind of consultancy element where we go in and we'll do things like policy reviews. We'll look at your organizational structures, your recruitment processes, look at your employee makeup and your employee satisfaction levels and things like that, and then determine how we can embed inclusion into that, how we can embed equitable practice into that and work with you to improve your inclusion ways and shift company culture. But there's also other elements of the work that I do. I do a lot of workshops, which cover both things like anti-racism, unconscious bias, LGBT inclusion. This is the interesting thing about it. I kind of had this set idea of what the work would include when I started it. And then there's just been so many opportunities that have opened up over the last year. I've been able to do mentorship through that. I've been able to do sensitivity coaching and working with theaters, like character development, um, and making sure that that was done in a sensitive and kind of well-considered way. And then lots of things like panel discussions, interviews, writing, and I've been able to use the whole range of skills and things and passions that I have, and I've been able to embed that into my work. So a lot of the work with confronting Change, like when I started it, I had this idea that I'd have to have a professional version of myself and then like my personal side. And I was going to, you know, have multiple Instagram accounts and LinkedIn accounts and all that kind of stuff. And then actually I was speaking to a business coach who really advised me that particularly given the nature of the work, being a diversity inclusion consultant, and I'm constantly encouraging the people that I work with to focus on authenticity and on creating spaces where employees can come in and be their whole selves and be their honest selves and feel safe and welcomed and that actually their experience is essential to their creativity and to, you know, being productive. So how could I do that if I wasn't leading by example? So it's been a really interesting process actually of um, being able to think about who I am, what I stand for and how I can embed that into the work that I do as well.
0: Wow, congratulations on that. And being yourself, you know, you are your brand. I came from a corporate background, worked in it for many years, and I was never aware of organizations like yours. That would have been great to have had a company like yours to come in. Not just diverse space, but a more comfortable space for those of us who are not within the majority. And then just hearing about how you work with the entertainment industry with theater, because I was just talking to a guest recently about that who's in entertainment and we were talking about a show, I won't say the name, but we both agree that the actors are great, but it doesn't feel like it's either not written by the people that it's representing, the Black folks in the show. Mm -hmm. It kind of feels like they're relying more on caricature and not on authenticity of these people in this community. So to hear that you have that platform, it's really great to hear.
1: Yeah. I don't have a background in theater or anything like that, but basically my happy place is in a theater. And I seem to be carving out a little niche for myself within um, performance arts organizations. So like dance companies, theater companies, recently working with a clowning company, all kinds of creative expression, I think is so essential. If we're talking about you know building inclusive communities and inclusive societies, like expression and creative expression is so important to that. And I think sometimes it gets overlooked by more corporate spaces. Like I understand the impact that theatre has had on my life as an audience member. And I understand what it means to performers to be able to see our stories being told, to see people who look like us on stage, you know, that representation. And so if I can help in creating that in an authentic way and in a way that is more relatable to my existence it really has been a dream come true in some ways like I didn't necessarily think that this is where my work would have gone but I'm really grateful that it has
0: mm. wow you said clowning I never thought of that industry <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. now you got the wheels turning right now like oh okay have I ever seen a clown that looks like me I don't know <laughs> there you go. yeah yeah Yeah. Has there been an organization like this before? Like, what was your motivation for creating your own um, company?
1: I mean, there's quite a few people like me who are out there who are doing this work. It's actually a very interesting field to work in because there are a lot of companies that are, you know, very small, relatively new in terms of, I think a lot of us have been around for kind of five years or less. But what is really interesting about it is that... It really does feel like a bit of a community, actually, because I think for the most part, we all come with this intention that we are not trying to be super competitive. We're not fighting each other for clients and things like that. There might have been a time when there was scarcity of clients, but actually now it definitely isn't the case. I'm cautiously optimistic that there is a lot of organizations who are obviously interested in doing this work and who understand the value of it. So there is a need for there to be like that competitive element of, you know, we're trying to hoard clients to yourself. So I often get recommendations from other organizations, other small consultancies for jobs that they don't necessarily think would be applicable to them in the way that they work, but they think will be relevant to me. And I'm very much always recommending other people who I think might be a better fit for the way an organization works. Again, like I was saying about trying to create the workplaces and trying to create the industry that we believe can be replicated across all industries, I do feel like I'm part of a community even though in theory we are all you know doing the same job and in theory should be you know maybe kind of being pitted against one another but i think actually we are changing that and we are proving that you don't have to be in this weird like competitive capitalist mindset we can do things like sharing our rates and sharing our client bases and sharing information and knowledge and best practice and actually if we do this work properly we're shifting company cultures we're shifting the attitudes towards things like inclusion and equality and equity as a unit. I think it's just really a powerful place to be at the moment. I don't know if I would have felt quite this way, maybe even five years ago when it probably was a much more difficult field to be in. And I think a lot of organizations weren't necessarily taking it as seriously. You know, this is the moment that we're in and I'm quite grateful for the community that I've been able to find within it.
0: Mm. Well, it seems like you're hitting when the iron is hot. You know, most recently here in the UK, I got caught up in the Euro matches. Mm -hmm. But then unfortunately, what happened afterwards with the racism against the three footballers. So, well, I know it's needed. We're in all these industries. So why can't we have all these different organizations representing that? Yeah. Yeah. So it's great. I wrote down a quote. I just want to uh, read it, if it's okay, from your website. And I have to say, because I am a graphic designer and I really like the look of your website. I love the colors. <laughs> but now that I see your wardrobe, it seems like it represents you.
1: <laughs> yeah, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Um, a lot of other sites that I visit that do the similar work. I think there's this idea of what professional needs to look like in order to be taken seriously. And I was very much of the mindset that if you are going to work with me, this is how I am. I don't want to have to like change my hair or dress a certain way. I'm going to wear what I wear, but my knowledge and expertise is not impacted by what I look like or what I dress like. So if you can get that you can see past that, you're maybe somebody that I should be working with. I have had meetings where you can see that they just don't take me seriously because I will have like pink hair or whatever. It's a really great way of immediately saying, I don't think we were meant to work together. That's absolutely fine. Good luck on your journey.
0: Wearing a suit and tie doesn't mean that a person is more professional. Yeah, I hadn't really followed the series, the uh, U.S. version of The Office. And, you know, there's some parts that are relatable. Just because you're sitting behind a desk and you have a certain haircut or a certain outfit doesn't mean that you're more professional or even more qualified. Exactly. (laughs) I just wanted to read this uh, quote to share because I really liked it on your site. It says, I create safe, open, and honest spaces where we can have frank and sometimes difficult conversations. I really like that. I think that's what keeps progress from coming out more into the open is that we're afraid to have difficult conversations.
1: Absolutely. And I think especially conversations around race or LGBT inclusion or gender, any issues that, you know, potentially relate to someone's personhood and identity, especially in the UK, I'm going to venture a bit of a fear of getting it wrong. And so people just would prefer not to have the conversation at all. And that's really how we've existed for quite a long time. Like, I think the UK operates under this system of assimilation. As long as you can kind of just get stuck in, get on with things, be professional, whatever that means then the idea is you won't have as many problems. But A, we know that's obviously not true. And B, why should I have to not talk about my experiences in order to make other people comfortable? Change can only come from sitting with that place of discomfort and feeling that sense of, okay, actually this isn't right and this makes me feel a bit uncomfortable. Why is that? And then, you know, reflecting on that, delving a bit deeper into where that discomfort comes from, what it means... And then how can we move past it? How can we use it to change things or to create different responses, different solutions?
0: That's a a good point. And just because a conversation initially feels uncomfortable, even if approaching the conversation, this is just me, I'm not in your industry, but that just as a, a regular everyday person, it's like, it doesn't mean that I'm trying to be antagonistic. It just means we need to talk about it to work towards a solution. Mm -hmm. So how has the response been from the companies or the organizations after you work with them?
1: I have been, I think, really, really fortunate on this journey. I think maybe an element of it has been because I've been able to lead from an authentic place right from the start. I was able to set that as a core value of how I was operating basically right from the beginning because I don't think I could have worked in any other way and felt happy or comfortable doing it. So I've been really fortunate in the fact that a lot of the organizations that I work with, I genuinely believe that they mean what they're doing, that they want to be better, that they are committed to this, even beyond their work with me. I've had quite a few who have returned to me, whether it's reviewing a new like initiative that they're launching and supporting them through that, or for a follow-up review and things like that. So the fact that they're also coming back is, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm really grateful for that, definitely. <laughs> but I think... think it also just confirms to me that they are committed and they are dedicated to doing this long term. It's really encouraging, you know, this work, it isn't easy. There's a lot of people who aren't doing it still because they know that they could get away with it. I think a lot of people here have felt that, you know, this conversation is going to die down eventually and we'll move on to something else. And so actually, do we have to keep talking about it? Do we have to keep doing this work? So I'm just really grateful that the people that I've worked with and have been fortunate enough to have found me or who I've built these relationships with do feel like they are genuine and they are committed and they understand that this has to have longevity and sustainability behind it. And it can't just be driven by like one individual who's there for a period of time and then leaves and then it all goes away. It has to become something that is part of their culture and part of the ways that they work. So yeah, I've been really, really lucky. But like I said, I've also had people, like I've had meetings with people who literally first meeting within the first like 10 minutes, we can be like, yeah, okay, I don't think we're going to work together. I don't think this is going to make sense for either of us. Not like I've been lucky every time and that's absolutely fine. But I think I have been actually because the people who I do end up going forward with, yeah, they get it.
0: It's interesting to hear, but it kind of makes sense that some people, especially people in positions of power, are waiting for this conversation to die down. Are these conversations to die down?
1: There was the, a race report released in the UK a couple months ago now, and it was commissioned by the Tory party. And there's lots of questionable people who were running it. And their findings were basically that the UK is not a racist country. In fact, we are one of the best countries in the world in terms of anti-racism, blah, 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 which was, yeah, you can imagine the response. And so I had a very real fear and I was actually really disheartened around that period, though, because I did feel like there would be a lot of people who, based on that, take it as a reason to not do this work and to be like, yeah, well, you know, things aren't really that bad you people who are complaining about racism are just making it up or just kicking up a fuss and actually we don't have to do anything about it and it might have been the case that some people are feeling like that it might have been the case that people personally feel like that you know i had conversations with some of my clients that week and every single one was like i can't believe that like i can't believe that's come out you know felt equally disheartened by that and so that was again really encouraging that even though this like ridiculous thing had been released that the people who I was interacting with and engaging with were not using that as an excuse to stop doing this work. They were actually, if anything, using it as an excuse to push ahead and recognize like how much more serious it is that we continue doing it.
0: Yeah. And gratitude for me, for social media, you know, again, with the Euro match and these people who use these platforms to spew this hate. It's like, Mm. that's a reminder that this stuff is here and it's real. Absolutely. Now, do you work with LGBTQ plus organizations? I'm thinking of like in the States, there's HRC and you mentioned Stonewall.
1: Yeah, I quite luckily have left on very good times in Stonewall. So there's always opportunities that where I'm going back to support. It was a very pivotal time in my life where I worked at Stonewall. And I don't think I would be in this field and doing this work today if I hadn't worked there, to be honest. Like I will go back to support with things like facilitating workshops or running certain programs with them. And I think because of my like social media presence and online presence, like I'm not like a social media person, but um there's two periods during lockdown. I was sat in the house by myself. My partner at the time was a photographer or is a photographer, and we were just kind of bored. And it was Black History Month first and then LGBT History Month. And I think we both felt like because of everything that had happened around the Black Lives Matter protests and things like that, it felt like this was a moment to kind of put our creativity into something positive and something useful. So we created these campaigns during Black History Month and LGBT History Month that were basically just like reflecting on my personal experience, LGBT experience and Black experience. And yeah, so from that, that was all went out on social media and stuff. And from that, I've been able to reach some really awesome LGBT organizations and support them in different ways. So I've done some LGBTQ mentorship through an organization called Learnist um, and work with them doing like panels and facilitation and things like that. There's a really great organization called We Create Space that I work with, again, will support with um, like panel discussions occasionally, or they run these like queer leadership spaces where it's all about like nurturing and developing queer leaders amongst ourselves, by us, for us, and recognizing different elements of our identities. So that's been a really, really incredible opportunity to work with them. There's a group called Gender Swap who I've recently done some work with. I did like a kind of short video around clothing and my (laughs) creative expression through clothing. Yeah, so there's just lots of like these different opportunities that crop up and it's been a real, just a real eye-opening experience being able to explore different elements of my own queer identity and queer experience in working with these organizations who are kind of asking these really deep questions that I think have always been floating around in terms of my own understanding of my queerness and stuff, but like I've never necessarily asked myself directly. And I've had quite a lot of time to reflect in the last year. And so it's been really, really amazing and incredible just being able to have that outlet and to be able to work with these great organizations and some of them who haven't been going for very long but are already doing such incredible work. And so I'm just really excited to see what they can do as we move out of, you know, lockdown restrictions and into kind of more face-to-face patients and things like that, because obviously community is so vitally important to the LGBT community and that like face-to-face interaction and interpersonal interaction is so important.
0: So speaking of identity, uh, how do you fit within the LGBTQ plus umbrella? Uh,
1: yeah, where? I feel like all of us have gone through these deep explorations to gender and stuff over lockdown. I would identify as, A queer woman or a lesbian, I don't really mind interchangeably. Masculine presenting or masculine of centre, gender non-conforming or butch some people refer to me as. So terms like queer and stuff, yeah, that's, I think, the one I've been most comfortable with because I think there's a lot of room for exploration both around my gender and how that relates to who I'm attracted to. And so I think that's probably the one I'm most comfortable with. But with all these other terms, it feels like they have been put on me by other people for quite a long time and it's only recently that I've been able to actually define and determine what some of that language means to me because I feel like there's also a lot of expectation that comes along with it when it's put up on you by other people around like what it means to be you know like a masculine presenting woman or a butch woman or how that relates to heteronormative ideas around masculinity and gender and male personhood and stuff and that isn't necessarily something that I relate to at all so I've always found that a little bit of a struggle, actually. But yeah, I think I'm kind of defining it for myself a bit more now. So I'm kind of happy using any of those terms, basically.
0: Thank you for that. Because as you were talking, I was like, yeah, how much of my identity have I really flushed out? Mm. I know who I'm attracted to or the gender, but there's so much more to it than that.
1: So I know a lot of people who have kind of really been thinking about gender quite a lot. I know quite a few people who've come out as non-binary across lockdowns and a lot of them have said that it's basically having to not go outside and perform society's expectations of gender and having to just not do that for six months, eight months, a year, however long it's been, has just given them the space to say, actually, I don't relate to this element or that element at all. And I've just been performing that my whole life like if anything good has come out of the last year, at least for some people, I think that's something really powerful.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely food for thought. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Now I came across, I think it was on your website that you talked about words that have been used to negate your authenticity. Can you share what some of those words are? And if they began when you identified yourself within the LGBTQ community? Or was this before then?
1: My Instagram handle is big black butch bitch. Sorry, I don't know if I could swear on this. No, sorry. no, you can't. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, so that's a starting point. And then, you know, I'm quite a dark skinned black woman. I'm like a big girl. I've been told, yeah, when I was young that I was ugly, too fat, too black. And then because as I, well, I mean, I've always been a tomboy and stuff. So it was always like too boyish or too masculine or whatever. So those are like, various ways that I've been described my whole life by different people. And that's not like obviously by everybody. That's just by select people and by society generally more broadly, which you also can't escape from. I think as I was coming to terms with like, and I think comes to terms with my sexuality, I think that I was always pretty like, okay, that's what it is. Yeah. Cause I think I'd always recognize that there is something different going on And then when I kind of heard some of the language and terminology, I was like, ah, yes, okay, this is me, that makes sense. Mm. So I'm not going to say coming to terms with, because like there was a little bit of obviously like discomfort around that. I was raised in quite a religious environment, and so there was some difficulty around that. But I've always pretty much been pretty like, I'm gay, (laughs) like whatever, like that I can't do anything about, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of like how I related to some of that language that was used against me, or used to like try and diminish my personhood. I think it was a way of almost like reclaiming it and saying, okay, well, I'm never going to be super girly and feminine. I'm never going to be light skin or whatever. So I might as well just be what I am. And I think initially it was almost done in a way that was rebellious against the expectation of what I should be. And then it's actually only very much in like recent years where it's become maybe a little bit more out of a place of like self-love and self-care and actually all those ideas about what you should have looked like or what you weren't measuring up to are utter nonsense and are racist patriarchal nonsense. So just be who you are and be the best version of myself. Yeah. And so with that, that's where I think a lot of things like my clothes and like all the colors and stuff like that, there's a very long period of time where I would only wear like black baggy clothes and it was like a literal bursting into Technicolor when I kind of was like, look, I'm just going to be as queer as I can be because actually this is quite fun and entertaining and life is hard enough as it is. I don't need all that additional stuff put on top of me by society's expectations when, you know, actually nobody is meant to measure up to those expectations anyway. So it was just a way of um, embracing myself and embracing all those terms that had been used about me or against me and actually turning them into something that was like a source of power and strength.
0: I thought of superheroes when they are attacked and they take whatever that is and they ball it up and they find their power in that negativity and hurl it back at the oppressors.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, just seeing you right now, is like, I wouldn't know who I was seeing if I didn't see the colors and the hair that to me, it's like, I'm drawn to it because this is who you are.
1: Well, I'm glad about that. Yeah. I mean, I've spent a lot of my life in predominantly like white spaces, predominantly straight spaces. And so I think I spent quite a lot of time trying to minimize myself or like hide aspects of myself and try and make myself invisible or try and make myself not noticeable. And it was ridiculous because obviously (laughs) I was quite noticeable in these spaces. So it was also like a bit of a turning point where I kind of said, I obviously stand out so I might as well just be the most flamboyant whatever version myself if people are going to look at me a bit funny and it wasn't always like a negative thing or like people were being horrible to me or excluding me it was just that sense where you're conscious that people are looking at you slightly different or wondering what you're doing in this space and so it was yeah definitely this point of trying to reclaim my space and my right to be in those spaces. And part of that was just saying, yeah, if you're going to be looking at me anyway, then I'm going to give you a reason to look, basically.
0: Yeah <laughs> I wrote this down too. I found your article, the interview you did with Andrew Keats, and okay. I think you've already answered it, but I liked the article and one of the questions you asked, I rephrased it for myself for you was, is telling LGBT stories a deliberate part of the choices you make and the stories that you choose to tell?
1: Yeah, I mean, like it wasn't a deliberate move how this happened, but I just seem to have created this queer bubble that I exist in. So the work and the opportunities that arise as a result of that seem to be very much about like representation and visibility and celebrating other queer people and yeah, very much about telling our stories, but telling not just the struggle and the pain, but also very much that emphasis on our joy, our Mm. beauty, our creativity, our contribution to our societies. You know, I never feel more free and empowered and liberated than when I'm in a room full of queer people. And so like, I want to showcase that. I want to highlight that. And I want to create that space for other queer people as well. It's integral to everything that I do.
0: And I think we've seen examples of that in pop culture and with language and fashion and all that, how we influence that. Initially, it's shunned and then all of a sudden it's on someone's runway.
1: (laughs) Yep, always. And then who's not getting the credit? Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Yeah,
0: exactly. So what's your educational background?
1: So I uh, have a master's in gender and sexuality studies from the from SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. And then prior to that, I did theology at St. Andrews in Scotland. Mm -hmm. But actually, so, yeah, weirdly, I went to a quite posh English boarding school, secondary school. But prior to that, I was in an American system. It was a southern missionary Baptist evangelical Baptist school in Senegal. So that was a weird experience. And that was effectively like being in this weird little cult. Um, But got out of that, thank goodness. And kind of just at this pivotal point where I was, I guess, like embracing my queerness, because I do not think that would have gone down very well there. And I think my life would have been very different had I stayed in that space. Then I ended up going to an all girls boarding school where um, yeah, things turned out very differently.
0: In hearing you talk, I mean, I don't know accents because I don't live here, permanently, at least, your accent's Scottish, is it? Or, or <laughs> am I not. completely wrong? <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely not.
0: Okay, safe. So then I bow down and say, I don't know.
1: I <laughs> know oh, it's fine. People do say that sometimes when they hear that I went to Union Scotland. I think it's just a little mix of transcontinental accent. You know, like for people who went to an international school, basically, there's a kind of weird American twang on some words. But then also because I think I went to that boarding school where it was kind of quite a posh accent and then there's maybe a twang here and there in Scotland but I don't think that influenced it very much but then I've also now lived in London for about 12 years and so probably in some words that there's also a weird twang there as well.
0: I'm always fascinated by people like you who've lived in different spaces and how the different accents you're around just kind of fuse into this great mix. Especially for me coming from the States. I mean, we hear an accent that sounds slightly British or from another country, like, oh, where are you from? <laughs> <laughs> so who were you as a child growing up?
1: Oh, um, that's a I feel big like Oprah question. asking that question. Geez, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> oh, um, I don't know. I mean, I think I've always like had quite a strong character. I think if anything, um that there was some elements of that that were muted maybe like the expectations of what being a good girl should be of my mom and dad's relationship I was the middle child I have an older brother and a younger brother of that relationship and then I have other siblings as well but I grew up with my cousins and my brother's friends and stuff all around and I think most of my friends were boys and stuff so I was always like a bit of a little tomboy I was always quite hard-headed and got told quite a lot that I had a temper but I don't think I had a temper I think I was just quite passionate that I wasn't going to be quiet And so, yeah, I feel like for a while that got muted for a long time. And then it's a part of myself that I think I've only actively been trying to uncover and encourage uh, to come out a bit more as I've grown up. In a lot of weird ways, I think like my character has always been well-formed. I don't think who I am now in terms of like, my moral code or anything has changed that drastically for when I was a kid. I'm quite an empathetic person and I like literally feel other people when there's something wrong or when people are upset. So like, even as a kid, if somebody was being bullied or didn't have lots of friends, I would like get my little gang to go and befriend them and make sure that everybody felt included and welcomed and stuff. I was always quite competitive in terms of class, academically competitive with people, but at the same time, like I want everybody to, succeed along with me if possible so if you know somebody's struggling with something and I I'm good at it or have an understanding of it like I want to share that and yeah I like to think that has carried on for me yeah like obviously the you know teenage nonsense going on and lots of big emotions and things like that as well so by that point I was in this all girls boarding school and kind of away from home and away from my parents and stuff but I do think like my character got me through that because I'm kind of the sort of person that I'll just get on in whatever environment you put me in something that allows me to adapt quite quickly to situations and to kind of just, yeah, always also stay quite true to myself as much as possible. Mm. Yeah. And I think that kind of just still remains now.
0: I thought uh, she would have been a great friend to have for me growing (laughs) up. I was such a shy little kid. (laughs) Like I want to sit next to her. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And I would have been like, come on over. It's all good. I wouldn't say I was popular or anything, but I'd say like probably me and my friends were the weird little misfit crew. We were having more fun than anybody. So like, whatever, let's be a little bunch of weirdos together.
0: (laughs) The ones being really themselves. I think the popularity that is uh, put at the top at least when we're teenagers it's somewhat restrictive so as far as your um you know your awareness of your attractions when did you become aware of that
1: uh this is something that I think about quite a lot or people have like asked me about and because I think a lot of people have this expectation that oh it must have been so hard or it must have been this really tormented experience Mm -hmm. in fact I can very much pinpoint the first time I was like That's interesting. I don't know if that's kind of what everybody else feels. And I was probably about eight. Like I had a teacher who was just like my favorite teacher. And I had, in retrospect, was a crush on her. You know, it was all very innocent. You just really like this person. You just really like want to be around them all the time kind of thing. I didn't read into it too much or anything. And I didn't feel bad or anything about it. I was just kind of like, I'm a little bit obsessed with this woman. (laughs) And then we were in this very intense, weird religious environment where there was no talk or mention of anything LGBTQ. I think the first time I heard the term lesbian I was probably about 11 and I heard it on CNN because a film had just come out and there was a lesbian kiss or something and it was some big furore and I also remember that moment because I was just like fascinated. I was like all of a sudden was hugely interested in what was happening in the news
0: my <laughs> <laughs>
1: excuse me what's going on here but yeah it was just this moment of like I didn't know this this was possible what's this now two women kissing excuse me. <laughs> um, so there's these moments that in my memory are just so clear to me of like ah yes there's something going on there so yeah then when I came to this all-girls boarding environment and there was a lot more conversations around that kind of thing happening and whatever whatever and it was like oh, okay yeah no I think that's I am I think that's that's what's going on there and then once I heard it and kind of accepted it it was kind of like yeah okay that's it that's me now there's like I said a little bit of turmoil around religion and stuff but then that lasted until I kissed my first girl and then I was like sorry Jesus I think like uh, this is really
0: <laughs> <laughs> see ya <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> I was nine. When you were describing that, I definitely didn't think, oh, I'm gay. I was just aware I was a first male teacher. Mm -hmm. All the girls are crushing on him. And I didn't think I was crushing. I was just aware that I didn't need to tell anybody I really wanted to hang around him as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, So it's interesting hearing how you describe that. Now, how was the reception, if it's okay to ask within the family or those within your close network?
1: Yeah, that's been interesting. Um, So amongst my school friends, and I think a lot of people would always have this perception of like, oh, you went to an all girls school, that must have been horrible, everybody must have bullied you so much. But actually, I think I've just got really lucky in the time that I was there. And I had this very close knit group of friends who are still like my best friends today, I see them every week. And it was just not really anything that was an issue for them actually quite recently one of them was telling me about all the um, homophobia that was kind of happening around me that I think that they protected and shielded me from in some ways or maybe I was just completely oblivious because I was like girls oh my god this is great um, <laughs> at the end of the day we were also you know 400 hormonal teenage girls up on a hill isolated from everybody else there was lots of exploring and exploration and stuff happening I think I had room to explore that in a space where like I don't know if there had been boys around or uh, you know kind of a different environment. I don't know that it would have been as easy or as accepted amongst my close friends, at least. There was another queer friend that I made in that space as well, who's again, still one of my best friends today. In terms of my family, it's been slightly different because I feel like it wasn't something that came up and I know people, when I tell them that, are always like, what are you talking about? Look at you. Of course, they knew. For example, my dad just wouldn't. And I wouldn't talk to him if I was like straight and had a boyfriend or whatever. I wouldn't tell him that until maybe if I was marrying them, I'd probably tell him. It's not a conversation that we would have. Even to this day, I haven't had that conversation with my dad. My mom passed away when I was 18. Hmm. We I never had a conversation about it, but I got the impression that she knew and wasn't too pleased about it. And that was kind of a source of some contention in our relationship but it was never directly stated that that was the issue. And then, yeah, with like my brothers and stuff. Like, I remember my little brother coming to visit me at uni, and there's about a five-year age gap between us, and I was living with my girlfriend at the time at university, and I was like, okay, I'm going to have to tell my brother, I'm going to have to come out. And I did, and he was like, yeah, obviously,
0: mate.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And he was like, yeah, of course, it's absolutely fine. Like, most of my friends are bi or whatever, who cares? Yeah, some of me with my older brother is kind of like a bit of jokes here and there, but Then there was one year, it was a Manchester Pride and I was out with my friends and I don't remember recalling them. I'd clearly been having a very good time.
0: (laughs) Air quotes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: But apparently I had rung my brothers up in the middle of the night and was like, you don't support me, you don't support my lifestyle. And so then I get a call the next day at like 2 p.m. And they're like, okay, we're here. Where do you want us to meet you? And I was like, what do you mean you're here? And they're like, they'd driven to Manchester to come to Pride to be like, yeah, we support you. We're here oh, for you. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't even remember making the call. So I was definitely shocked that they turned up because I was like, what are you doing here? Um, But then, yeah, I ended up hanging out and they're great. They don't really care. But I do have um my older sister, she's a, an adopted sister. Um, yeah, is my sister and but she's quite a bit older than us. It, again, it's kind of from a very evangelical Christian background. And for a long time, it was something that we like just didn't talk about. Like I don't think I ever even probably came out. She lives in Manchester and I'd gone up to Manchester for a pride, and she was kind of put two and two together, but again, we didn't really talk about it. Mm. And this was maybe four or five years ago. And now we're at a point where we, she's gone from not talking about it at all to now still asking me, how's your friend, whenever I have a girlfriend that I live with or something. <laughs> um, but she's trying. She's <laughs> acknowledging that that person exists. She's always like, yeah, hope you guys are both well. Hope you're looking after each other. But yeah, so, you know, some of those journeys are still a journey. But um, if you told me five years ago that she'd be even like acknowledging that I had female partners, I would have laughed in your face. So, um, yeah.
0: That's a reminder that it's not just us that has to process this. Yeah. Wow. So you're also a writer. When did you discover that gift?
1: (laughs) I think like, even as a kid, like I've always loved kind of telling stories and reading and writing and that was all kind of tied together and exploring, I guess, different worlds in that way. And then, as I said, I was quite a pretentious teenager so I was very much like I'm a poet now actually uh, <laughs> and would write all this really shockingly bad teenage poetry which I found some the other day and I was like wow you had a lot of feelings didn't you <laughs> <laughs> um you know I think I've got a good grasp of language and words and kind of how to make things sound fun and it's just always been yeah like a way of again kind of like my clothing like a way of just expressing the most flamboyant parts the most kind of intricate parts of myself that I don't necessarily give room to explore. I have spent quite a lot of my life trying not to be too deep around things, but I think with writing, that's somewhere where it is literally sometimes I will start writing and I've gone out of my body and something else has taken over me and everything is kind of coming out so in terms of creative stuff I'm maybe a lot more hesitant about it and especially about putting it out into the world and there's a project that I'm working on at the moment and I don't really know what I'm going to do with it but I feel like it's something that could be something maybe Mm -hmm. and where I've kind of set myself parameters within it I don't know sometimes I feel like with other stuff I could intellectualize it or I can hide behind flamboyant language and stuff But I think when I'm putting my creativity out there, it's coming from such a raw place. Like I'm way more hesitant about putting that out. I mean, actually, that said, I did publish a piece in um, a magazine called Butch is Not a Dirty Word earlier this year. I've wanted to write for this magazine for years. It was a reflection on the feelings that I had after George Floyd's murder and around the protests and everything. That was probably one of the most vulnerable things that I've ever written. Not long after that, I decided to launch my own company. I decided to make a lot of changes in my life as to like who I was and how I approached life and things like that. So it was kind of this big shift and turning point.
0: Yeah, well, I look forward to hearing how you progress in that arena. I'm also a, a writer. Yeah, it's a scary thing. I know. I understand. I was going to say, I found your piece that you wrote on the Handel and Hendrix Museum, which I thought was an interesting combination when I read the piece. Because I know a little bit about Jimi Hendrix. I knew nothing about the other guy, but they weren't even in the same century. And yeah, it was an interesting piece to read.
1: (laughs) I've done a proper deep dive into the things I've
0: written
1: (laughs) (laughs) so long ago. It's a very interesting place. I recommend you go.
0: Do you have any more creative endeavors, personally or professionally?
1: I mean, I've got a couple of projects that I'm interested in running at the minute. <laughs> I'm going to call myself a creative visionary. Yeah, um, I like
0: that term. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but I think like I'm good at seeing maybe the possibilities of what things could be. And so I think I come up with some quite potentially big ideas and conceive really clearly like how they could function, how they could work and what they could be for other people. But I don't necessarily, I'm not always the one who should be executing like every element of it. So like a project that I'm really interested in working on at the moment is around documenting the stories of queer elders. And there's been a few of these projects that have happened recently, but I really want to connect them with older queer people who wouldn't necessarily otherwise have an opportunity to tell their stories. But I want to link that with young creatives so they can interpret those stories into whatever their medium is. So it's an opportunity for the elders to not only pass on their histories, but then also to create these intergenerational links and connections as well. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's like, I think my kind of passion project at the minute.
0: Yeah, I love that because many of us won't have offspring, but we still need to be linked as far Mm -hmm. as generations.
1: Absolutely. And so much of our history is forgotten.
0: Well, I really, really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much again. (laughs) (laughs) Where can we find you online?
1: So my website is www.confrontingchange.com and on instagram i am at big black butch bitch and those are probably the places that i'm most active i am on twitter at yt senghor y-t-s-e-n-g-h-o-r on my website there's links to other stuff that i've done so yeah you can find bits of my work and i guess i'm also on linkedin if that's your vibe at yassin senghor okay well thank you so much this has been really really great and it's been great meeting you
0: Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends too. You can also follow us on Instagram at our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at blkgaydiaspora. Until next time.